So we're continuing in our series called The Answer That Changes Your Life. And so as we began the series, it began with a question that Jesus asked to Peter, who do you say that I am? And the challenge that we have as we listen in on that conversation that Jesus has with Peter is the same thing that he has with each one of us as followers of Jesus Christ. The way that we answer that question can change our lives. If we just say that he is a teacher or he is a miracle worker or he is just a person that's a nice uh, comforter, if that's all we relegate Jesus to, then we miss out on his lordship on his power, on his sovereignty. We miss out that he is more than just simply a person. He is God of very God. And for us to experience that, we need to not just answer with the right words, but our action has to follow through as well. See, the way that we answer that question and the conviction towards which we live that out, it determines what kind of faith we experience. And this is why for some of us, even though we've been to church for a long time, even though we've been walking with Christ for a long time, he feels irrelevant. He feels that there's no difference between someone who goes to church and someone who doesn't. And it's usually because of the way that we've determined the answer to that question in the way that we live our everyday life. You know, I was watching a Netflix show on, on cooking um, there's a lot of cooking shows that are out there, and this one was called, I think it was called Pressure Cooker or something like that. And when I was watching this, uh, there's this one episode where uh, near the end of it, near the finale, where they're trying to, um, uh, try to take out as many of the chefs as possible, they were told, you have 24 hours. So before, they didn't have any time to prepare. It was, but this one, they had a bunch of food critics that would come in, and they said, you have 24 hours to prepare a seven-course meal. And so depending on their preparation, uh, these chefs, they, and depending on how they use that 24 hours, uh, they use it all the way to the very end to make sure that whatever they were marinating, whatever they were preparing, that it would not just go along smoothly as, as they were bringing out the seven-course meal, but also the taste of the food would not just be superficial. You see, these food critics, when they ate it, they were able to detect whether a certain protein had this flavor to it or this flavor profile that was just on the surface. It was just superficial. And then as they chewed into it more, it lost that superficial flavor because it wasn't marinated properly. And then the last taste that they had in their mouth was a taste that said, yeah, that's not it. I feel like I'm just eating raw meat, right? And people who prepared it well and prepared it properly, they felt, wow, to the very last kind of like tonal notes that they got from their one bite out of that protein. They're saying, this was marinated properly. It soaked all the way through and not just superficially. I know that food challenges, what we see here in Netflix, it doesn't compare to our Christian life. It doesn't compare to us at all. But the illustration that I want to highlight is basically this from it, is if preparation and just food prep makes a difference in terms of mar marinating certain elements so that it's not just superficial, but it goes all the way through. If in something as simple or as, you know, non-important as that is, then how much more important is it when in today's passage, 
we hear that John the Baptist was brought to prepare the way to meet Jesus Christ. His whole ministry was based on prepare God's people. Prepare my people so that when Christ comes, you will not miss out. So when Christ comes, it will marinate that lordship, that experience, that encounter. It won't just be superficial, but it will marinate all the way through beyond just simply our habits, our weekly habits, or things that we must do, but penetrate deep into our hearts because that's what we believe. You see, if it's important in terms of protein marination, and this is something that's very, you know, trivial, then how much more important is preparation in the way that we live our lives? So I want to begin by inviting us to read together from Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 through 13. I'll read it for us. It comes from the NIV. You can follow along in your own Bibles, or you can read along on the screen behind me. It reads this. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for giving us your word and allowing us to journey with you. I pray at this time, just as we approach this throne of grace, this throne of mercy, I ask, Father, will you help us to do what sometimes we can't do for ourselves? Help us, Father Lord, to lay down our barriers. Help us, Father Lord, to lay down our pride, to lay down, Father Lord, any, anything, any challenge that is in the way of us from hearing your word, to listen, to hear, and to do as it says. I pray today, Father Lord, will you guide us in your truth? 
will you convict our hearts? Will your spirit bless each and every one of us, Lord? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See, the first thing that we learn from John the Baptist's ministry, where he says, Jesus is coming. And not only does he want to come in power in our life, to uh, this Jesus who's incomparable, John says, to his own ministry and what he does. A lot of times we think about the Christian life as a Christian life is saying, yes, I'm a sinner. And to acknowledge that and to say, yes, I, I've sinned before God and I need Jesus Christ and I acknowledge the work that he did on the cross for my sin. This part is called repentance. And this part, sadly, for a lot of Christians is where we stop. Is where we think that Christianity is just about the cross. It's just about going there and acknowledging, I'm bad, I made mistakes, I'm not perfect, I need Jesus in my life. But what John says is he says, if we stop there, the person that comes after, he says, Jesus who comes after is incomparable to his ministry. Brothers and sisters, sometimes I find that we miss out on who comes after Jesus, the Holy Spirit who comes after, because we stop at repentance. We allow it to just be that superficial kind of norm or that habit, tradition that we go through, and we stop there. And because we stop there, we never experience what comes after where he says, the Holy Spirit's supposed to come. And this spirit that comes what he offers us is so much greater than what I am offering you. He says it's so much more than just repentance. You see, within this short passage, repentance is important, though. It needs to be marinated really deep into our hearts and into our lives. It can't just be words. It just can't be actions or tradition that we do in order to get baptized. It must be more. Repentance means this. Repentance is to change one's mind and then to act on that change. You see, it's not just simply saying, I'm wrong, I accept Jesus into my life because I'm a sinner and that he took my sin and he died with it on the cross. That's just words. What he says is, now from there, will you act on that? Because if we don't act on it, what happens is what Paul says is we take grace for granted. We automatically assume, oh, it's okay, because now that Christ has done this for us, every time I make a mistake, every time I stumble, it's going to be forgiven. That's the mindset that we have. And so we don't change our ways, we just ask for more grace. But what John is saying here is that it's not only to change our minds, but to begin to act on it, that we begin to live differently. See, John wasn't interested in remorse or regret. It can be sincere. Our regret and our remorse towards God about the way that we live, that can be sincere. But he's saying, I'm not interested in just simply that momentary emotion. He says, does it bring change in into our life? Will we act on it? Neither was John interested in the leaders just going through the motion for the sake of an insurance plan, just to make sure that I'm going to be saved no matter what happens. And this is why the appearance, remember all these people from Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside of Judea, this is why everyone was coming out and John was baptizing them. But then what irked John was when he saw the Sadducees and the Pharisees begin to come. Now, these religious leaders, the 
Pharisees, they were traditionalists. Uh, what you can consider them are like our modern day like fundamentalists. You have to believe in our way. And if you don't believe in this way and you commit to all these rules, regulations, and legalism, you are not saved. They were fundamentalists. It was just black and white. Everything's just black and white for them. And if you're not with them, you're against them. Now, the Sadducees, they were a little bit more wealthy. And being uh, a people of great wealth, even though they were a religious sect, they really loved the power that came with their wealth. And so they were very liberal with their understanding of faith. Now, these two people, these two groups that kind of controlled the church at that time, suddenly they're hearing that all these crowds of people, members from their own temple, are now going to John to be baptized. And so these leaders, they need to go out too because there's a big commotion, a lot of, um, a lot of energy being poured in into John the Baptist ministry. So they too are going because if they don't get baptized by who the people consider to be a prophet of God, then they will be dismissed by the public. And so these Pharisees and Sadducees, they come and they're waiting in line to be baptized by John as well. And here, this is why John looks at them and he says, you brood of vipers, who told you to escape the coming wrath of God? It, it's very strong language, but what John is trying to point out is this, is you guys are like snakes. You hide out in your holes, right? And at the, at the sound of possible fire that's about to come, you just slither out of your holes, and you just go through the motions, but you don't really mean it. It's not something that you really want. And as soon as the motions are finished, you'll just slither back into your holes and stay there and commit to your own ways. You will never change. See, this is why John was upset, is that the leaders that represent the people's faith, they were teaching others how to be superficial. And he goes, it can't be that. It must be more. See, for us, it's possible, just like these Pharisees and Sadducees, to do all the right things. Weekly church, um, community groups, Bible studies, daily devotion. It's, it's possible to do all the right things, but our motive is off. And when our motive is off, it's possible, just like the Pharisees and Sadducees, that nothing is really changing. We're just doing superficial actions that make no change, that, that don't introduce us to Jesus Christ. And this is what John is trying to bring out into the open to make clear that our motives for why we do what we do is absolutely important. See, in this passage, John the Baptist, he identified two misguided assumptions that we can sometimes have in our life as we try to prepare the way, as we try to do this repentance thing that John is inviting us to, there's two misguided assumptions that we might have that can lead us away from true repentance, that makes repentance that we do nullified. And so he points them out here. The first, the first misguided assumption that he points out is the pride of self-righteousness. The pride of self-righteousness. See, for the Pharisees, their motive was directed by their pride of self-righteousness. I am better, 
or I am more righteous than all the other people around me. That was their motive for everything that they do. As I'm doing this, I am better. God loves me more. God accepts me more than anyone else. That pride of self-righteousness is what was hindering them from true repentance because they kept comparing superficially what they were doing on a weekly basis or on a daily basis with everyone else. And he says, surely God loves me more than he loves everyone else. But that attitude is what kept them from really repenting because they said, I don't really need to repent so much because compared to them, I'm a saint. That was their mindset. See, it was obvious to everyone around them that there was no one more committed than the Pharisees. And the Pharisees knew this as well. There was no one that was doing more for the church or more for God legalistically than the Pharisees. And that's what they had in their heart. And that self-righteousness, it morphed into arrogance. They had an arrogance about their relationship with God. See, Jesus knew that this would continue and would continue to be a big problem for the church and for all of us as we follow after. Because he's saying, as soon as we try to get our act together, we will have that same self-righteousness that builds up in us. We try to change, and then as soon as we change, compared to our other friends who haven't changed, we begin to think self-righteously. It's just a natural thing that happens. We're saying, well, at least I'm better than other people. Remember that story that Jesus gave, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. They went to the same church. They were praying to the same God. And Jesus says, here was the difference. When the Pharisee went to church and he started to pray, he noticed that the tax collector came in behind him and was praying as well. And the Pharisee, the way that he prayed, that we see in Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14, he just says, God, I thank you. And what comes to his mind because he sees, and he knew that the, fair, the tax collector was there. What comes to his mind is, God, I thank you because at least I'm not like that guy. See, sometimes when we pray and we're coming before this holy God, we have this like secret inner voice, this arrogance, this self-righteousness that says, at least I'm not like that. In other words, it's this kind of excuse, this rationale that I'm better than everyone else. And Jesus says that kind of prayer, that kind of motive that, that comes out of us, whether it's in our subconscious or whether that repentance hasn't truly sunken into our hearts, that kind of prayer, he says, is a prayer that goes unanswered. It's not something that God acknowledges as good. There's a problem that is happening there. You see, when the... When the crowds are hearing this story, and they hear right away, a Pharisee and a tax collector came into the temple to pray, they already projected, I know what's happening. I know what's about to happen. Because they are automatically siding with the Pharisee. Because you got to understand, we don't understand the kind of hatred that the Jewish people had for tax collectors. They were traitors. They despised them. They loathed tax collectors. They absolutely hated them. And so as soon as they hear, what, a tax collector went into our temple? Like, they're already upset. Even though they may not respect the Pharisees as much because they know how legalistic they are, they already know tax collectors don't belong in a church or in a temple. 
And as soon as they hear that, they're saying, why should this guy be praying to God? Why should God even acknowledge the tax collector's prayer? It's despicable. And so when Jesus asks the question, who left the temple justified before God? It's a very challenging question for them to answer because they hate the tax collector. But what it sounds like is when he says, but the tax collector couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven because there's true repentance. Is God, I am not worthy to lift my eyes even to look in the space of where you may dwell. And all he asks for is, I know how wretched I am. Have mercy. You see, this tax collector, he understands what he's doing to his own people. He understands a betrayal. He understands the despicable nature of his job. And here we see this true repentance. As he knows it, but it's his job, he comes before God and he goes, I know what I am. And it's so, it disgusts me as well, but this is who I became. And for, the, for him, as he's going before God is, you probably don't accept me. I probably am like cursed even being in this temple. But there's true repentance that happens as he says, will you have mercy? And to other people's ears, as they hear the tax collector walked out justified, they're upset. It's something they can't accept. That, no, not that guy. Let me um, try to bring this closer to home. And as I do, I hope it doesn't change. Well, it, it probably will change your opinion of me, but it's okay. I'm a sinner as well. So a few days ago, I was driving my car, and I always take my dog, Obi, to this park, um, just, you know, just uh, to a park about 10 minutes away. And um, a few months back, I, there's this, like the, there's two lanes that go towards it, but it merges into one. The right lane merges into the left. And as I was going a few months ago, as I was going on that path, um, there's this blue, light blue Mercedes uh, with this person driving in it. And this person, as we were driving, this person was right beside me. And then as the road's about to merge, this person just cutting me off, like, like almost sideswiping me to get me off the road so this person can merge in. And I was like, what? what's this person doing? I got so angry that I began to honk the horn, and I was so upset at this person saying, this person's clearly in the wrong, right? What this person is doing didn't even put on their signal, doesn't even care there's a car, and they just, you know, uh, tries to, like, push me off the road. I was so upset. But luckily, I had my wife in the car with me, and my wife told me, calm down. Right? Because I wasn't coming down. Like I, I could feel my foot getting heavier on the gas pedal. And you know, sometimes when you have rage, you try to like, you know, go right up behind them as, as fast as close as possible. And so that was what I was doing. And she's like, What are you doing? You're gonna hit that car. Stop. And I'm like, this person, right? They, they shouldn't be doing that. And they go, let it go. Right? So okay, let it go, and then went to the park. And a few days ago, this very same person on the same road, she did the this person, I don't want to say, she did the same thing, the same thing. And, and I, I remember this, and then this time, 
there's a car that was coming on uh, the opposing traffic, and so I almost got into a collision, not just from her, but also from the car that was coming the opposite way. I was so angry. I had to hit on my brakes really hard so that she could go, and then I can go back into uh, my lane. And I was like honking, honking, and I was so upset, right? And I'm just waiting for her reaction, for her to say sorry. But do you know what she gave me instead? <laughs> she gave me <laughs> the finger. I was like, you're the one that's wrong. I was so angry. You're the one that's wrong. And my dog is suddenly silent because I'm like yelling. There's no one else in the car. It's just me and my dog. And I'm yelling, right? And I'm saying, you're the one that's wrong. You're the one that cut me off. Why are you giving me the finger? And I'm like yelling my head off. And my dog, he just, and he's just sitting there because he knows I'm upset. And I rolled up his window because I don't want, you know, more of my voice like, you know, going off into the street. But I couldn't contain it. And so because I couldn't contain it, when there, was, when there was space, I like weaved around her, went in front of her, and then at the stoplight, I rolled down my window, and I <laughs> looked out my window towards the back so she could see me, and I started yelling because I was so angry. And as I was yelling, what are you doing, right? You had no signal, and you cut me off, right? So all I just needed her to do was acknowledge. That's it. She's just like, sorry, my bad right? I shouldn't have given you the finger. That's it. And I would have just, I would have calmed down. But she said words to me <laughs> that I can't repeat live here or in public here. And so I said words to her <laughs> that I can't repeat and I can't say live here. Your pastor is a sinner. All right, like, like, if you were there, that's one of my greatest fears is you cut me off and I start like, <laughs> I rolled down my window and I start yelling before I notice that it's you. See, at that point, you know, I, during this whole time, the whole sermon's in the background, right? <laughs> because it's marinating. <laughs> the sermon's marinating. Um, but I was so filled with my own personal justice, self-righteousness that I couldn't hold it in. So later on, my son was the first one that I was able to meet. And as we're driving, I told my son the whole story. And, you know, I'm doing it not just to, you know, get it vented out, but I want someone else to see. Yeah, I'm right, right? And she's crazy, right, to do that. But my son made it worse. He poured fuel into the fire and goes, Dad, do you know what I would have said? I was, and then he goes off into this whole, like, even worse tirade than I do. And I'm like, okay, that's not helping, but it makes me feel better, but that's not helping. Right? And when I got home, <laughs> I sat down to finish off this message. Right? And I was like looking at the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Yeah, I'm not like that guy. Right? And I'm not like this person. I realized, wow, that's how easy this kind of like self-righteousness can come in into me. Because my whole mindset, I realized just how similar my heart is with the Pharisee. That I say, God, I'm so happy I'm not like her. Like this person that comes. I would never do that. I'm so much more better at driving than this person. Right? And when I have that, it, when I'm that angry, or uh, maybe you guys have experienced this too, but when you're that angry, there is no room to even think that you might be wrong as well. 
because you're completely justified in your own righteousness. And that was me. There's no room at all until I got back to this and I sat down and, you know, as the Holy Spirit does begins to like, you know, you know, claw at my, uh, at my heart and just saying, can you really say this sermon? Can you really teach other people this when you're doing this? And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> Where was I wrong in this? I'm not like that person. And he goes, are you not? He goes, what are you doing now? You're like absolutely condemning and you're not seeing your own anger. You're not seeing your own self-righteousness. You're not seeing that you too contribute to sinfulness in this world. And you're just absolutely convinced that you are good. You see, I think at times for us, we need to remember this self-righteousness is not just something that we relate to the Pharisees and we just say, yeah, only Pharisees are like that. And I'm glad I'm not like the Pharisees. But as soon as we do that, we're doing the same thing. We're acting just like them. And this is why that true repentance doesn't sink in. Because we got to a certain point and we feel like I'm okay, right? We reached our limit. Right? We reach our part, our expectations, and we're saying, saying, yeah, I went up to this line, and I acknowledge that I make mistakes, and I acknowledge, but we won't go past that. And that's just surface level. To go past that is to get to that place where I am, where suddenly, in my deepest rage and my anger, totally convinced of my own self-righteousness and why bad things are happening to me when it should happen to that person instead. At that moment, as God's Spirit says to me, you are sinful as well. I can't handle that because now it's going past my lines that I've created. This is how far you go, Holy Spirit. You go, Jesus, in my life because past that, now you're getting into a territory I'm not willing to cede. I'm not willing for you to step in into because I'm absolutely convinced that that's not me. You see, Jesus doesn't commend the tax collector for being a sinner. He's not saying, look at the tax collector, he's a sinner, right? And he walks away justified by God. No, that's not what he's commending. What Jesus is commending about him is he's saying he's a repentant sinner. Someone who comes to the point where they just understand and they loathe their own sinfulness. They know who they are. And they continually loathe that and say, this is who I am. Have mercy. And in my deepest anger and my deepest rage where I'm so convinced of my self-righteousness, that's the point where I need to be able to look up to heaven and say that same prayer. And, and to brush off that arrogance and that self-righteousness and saying, I don't deserve to pray this, but I need prayer as well. I need to repent as well. The second thing that John tells us to watch out for, mis these, um, this misguided assumptions that we can have, is he says, dependence on heritage. He looks at the Pharisees and he says to the Pharisees, and don't think this, he says, and don't think just because you can say you have Abraham as your father or as your ancestor that you can say that you are saved. 
that you are in the clear, that you are part of God's family. Because I tell you the truth, God can take rocks and make these rocks, he says, children of God. This is encouraging and challenging for us in both ways. It's, it's challenging because for us, sometimes we have that assumption too. The Pharisees, their assumption was, hey, we come from the right bloodline. We acknowledge Abraham and we acknowledge his ways and the way that God worked in his life. And so that's part of me too. And so I'm part of that camp. And so for us as Christians, we can say, I go to church. At least I read my Bible. I'm better than, you know, the other heathens that are in my workplace or my friends that don't go to church at all, at least for me, I can rest on this, that I go to church, so surely God will accept me. Surely God understands me. I'm in that camp. Surely I will go to heaven. And, Jesus, and John says, not so fast. Now, this is challenging because everyone knew Pharisees will go to heaven. Everyone knew that. Pharisees go to heaven. Because there's no one more committed to laws than they are. But John says, no. Don't think that just because you have Abraham as your father, that you think you are going to have it. doesn't work that way. In the same way for us, we need to understand that too. Just because we have these habits in our life or this heritage in our life, it doesn't mean that we have a free path to go to heaven because he says if this repentance doesn't marinate all the way through, we never repented. We've never learned what it means to accept Jesus as our Lord. We've never actually encountered or been filled by God's spirit because to be filled, he says, requires change. Everything changes. But here's the encouragement. The encouragement that John gives in that very same challenge, he says he can even take rocks and make them children of God. Now, I'm not, I'm not sure about you, but for me, sometimes I feel like my own spirit, my own kind of like ability to listen to God, sometimes I'm like a rock. It takes forever for anything of God to be inscribed onto my heart, inscribed into my life, for me to get a concept, for me to really understand. And God's, John's encouragement to me is, like you, Eddie, you're a rock sometimes, and nothing really penetrates. But God can even take rocks like you, that you think you know, but your arrogance is so stubborn, it's so rock-headed, that the encouragement, he can take that and bring you into the kingdom as well. See, brothers and sisters, this is why that repentance part, that preparing part is so important. Because without that and without it really soaking in, he says the reward that comes next, the benefit of being a follower of Jesus Christ he says that part that makes life exciting, that makes life worthwhile, that makes everything that we do worth it, he says that part we don't get to experience. So he's saying, why will we carry this burden of trying to go through the motions and we get none of the benefits? And, Jesus, and, and uh, John says here that as much as my ministry is important in preparing the way and making sure your hearts are prepared, he says there's one that comes after me, and despite your initial hardships, the reward that comes, this res that the reward that comes is encountering Jesus Christ, who brings God's Spirit, His Holy Spirit, into our life. See, repentance comes first. And what follows true repentance 
John says, is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Without true repentance, it really penetrating in, there is no filling of the Holy Spirit. There needs to be that surrender. You know, we see the biggest example of this in, in Paul, where we see Paul, you know, before he became Paul, he was Saul going on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians because of his self-righteousness. He believed, he was a Pharisee, and he believed that he was right. And he was doing what God wanted him to do. And until he had that encounter with Jesus where this voice suddenly shines and it blinds him. And then this voice says, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting my people? For the first time, that repentance of what Paul thought that he already did, for the first time, he encounters this holy God and it challenges him. Do I stay, uh, do I stay my ground? And just say, I'm still right before you. I'm better than all of these Christians that are living. I'm more righteous. Does he stay his ground or does he fully repent? And what we see in Paul is he repents. It took him a while. It says that he was blinded and then he's taken off. And he's sitting in a while in someone's house just waiting. And he's, he's still processing. And that Lack of repentance is still shown by the scales that are in his eyes, that he's still blind to Christ. He's still blind to God. And God puts on the heart of Ananias, one of, his, one of Jesus' disciples. He says, go in into this house because Saul, that's going to be Paul, is waiting for you there. And I want you to pray for him. And as you pray, if there's repentance in Paul's heart, These scales that are in his eyes that show that blindness, it will fall. And Ananias, he says to Ananias, and then bless him with the Holy Spirit. You see, what we see happen next is exactly that. Ananias went, Paul's still in this place of just really soaking everything in and recognizing that he's in the wrong. He rep- we, we assume repentance because the scales, they fall from his eyes. And then we see God's work in his life through the filling of God's spirit. See, repentance, brothers and sisters, is simply the doorway. That's all it is. Repentance is just the doorway for us to come to meet Christ. It's not the final destination. It's the open doorway where we begin our relationship with Jesus Christ. So how do we repent? How do we do it? Well, John says there's two things. He says, to prepare the way in our own hearts, he says, keep on doing two things. Number one, he says, keep on confessing your sins. We see, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then people came, and what were they doing? They kept confessing their sin. So for us, we need to do the same thing. God, have mercy on me. God, I'm a sinner. This needs to be this kind of daily practice where we come before God and we start chipping away at our arrogance. We start chipping away at our self-righteousness. God, forgive me for I'm a sinner. I need your mercy. The second thing he says is he says, as we are doing that, we produce fruit in keeping with that repentance. So what does that mean? It says that as we do that, we keep on living according to that repentance. What does that mean? That means like me, you know, when I get road rage and I'm so angry because I am going to meet that light blue Mercedes car again in some time. And as I meet it, because God already put that 
conviction in my heart. You need to repent of this and the way that you deal with other people when they are in the wrong and you are in the wrong. And so producing fruit in keeping with repentance would be this. The next time she does it, and she will do it, right? So the next time she does it, my life needs to take a different approach. Instead of this anger that comes up, which will, I need to subdue that anger in keeping with repentance and just say, God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on her. And it changes. We're called to change fruit that's in conjunction with repentance. That's our part. That's what we do. And as we start doing it, that repentance, it begins to marinate deeper and deeper. Because the more it marinates deeper, the more you will hate it. Right? The more it eats away at you. That's why Jesus says, if any one of you wants to become my disciple, he must first, what? Deny himself. Pick up his cross and follow me. He also says in other passages, he says, you must first die to yourself in order to follow me. It really feels like that. Have you ever had a fight with your sibling or your parents and you don't want to be wrong and you feel like you're dying inside to say sorry to the other person because you don't want to say sorry, but for you to say it, you feel like everything in your life has to die for you to say it? That's what it's supposed to feel like. You must die to yourself. And as we practice this fruit in keeping with repentance, what does he say? And then one comes after me whose sandals I'm unworthy to carry. He says, and one will come after you as you practice this confession and the fruit that accompanies that confession. One will come after you in that part of your life. And you will experience the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't a full-blown, once-and-for-all kind of thing. God works in small areas of our life, areas that we can handle at first, and then he expands from there. So it might first work for people like me, in my rage and my anger and my short temper, right? He's working in there, but he's not done and just say, great, I'm done. I'm purified. I experienced the Holy Spirit. I'm good to go. No, there's going to be now other areas that the Spirit begins to visit, knock on the door, prepare this part of your heart now. And that's what we do. Brothers and sisters, I pray that each one of us will learn, how do we prepare the way? Are we preparing the way? And if you haven't experienced God's spirit yet in your life in a significant way, maybe this is where we need to start. We all know that one part of our life that brings us the greatest frustration, that's our hot button topic. As soon as someone brings it up, we just explode in anger. That's where we start. That's the most sensitive part. And we keep on repenting. We keep on confessing. And as much as it feels like we're dying to ourselves, I promise you that what accompanies that dying is not more death. But what accompanies that dying, he says, is God's spirit that comes to bless you, to lift you up, to give you freshness and newness of life. He wants us to taste and see that he is good. Let's pray.